If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them and open them or turn them on or whatever you would like to do. Swipe right to get it going. Um, James chapter one is where we're going to be. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get them to James chapter one. And we're going to be continuing this series called Counterculture. And we'll explain a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, but I, I thought that this week, I don't know if you know this or not, but kids are back in school. And all the, right? All the kids said, Ugh, right. And then the parents are excited about that. A lot of us. And so uh, kids are back in school. And so this week, last week is just kind of uh, the last week, week and a half for kids. It's kind of been just playtime, get to know people. Right. And, you know, and so this week is when like testing starts. And the scripture says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to grieve with those who grieve or take tests with those who take tests. And so. I thought as a public service uh, benefit to our students and to our parents, we would get back in the grind of taking a test. All right. And so we're going to take a little pop quiz. And so I need you to take out a sheet of paper and a pen or pencil, some sort of writing instrument. You too, Terry York. Come on, let's go. I see you just standing there. All right. Some of you are stubborn like I'm not doing that. I need you to do that. And this is what we're going to do. All right. I know. Listen, the excitement in this room right now is off the charts. All right. Here's what we're going to do. I found online what the Internet called, and it's on the Internet, so it has to be true, right? It was called the world's easiest trivia quiz. All right, so I'm going to give you a quiz, and you're going to answer. If you were in first service, by the way, you don't get to participate because you already know the answers, all right? This is the world's easiest trivia quiz, all right? And so you ready? Just write down number one. You don't have to write down the question. Just write down the answer. Here's question number one. How long... Did the Hundred Years' War last? All right, don't say it out loud. Some of you are just on the edge of your seat to announce how smart you are. Don't, don't do that, all right? In the first service, I had trouble with people shouting out answers in the middle. Like, just write it down. We'll come back to it, all right? How long did the Hundred Years' War last? Number two, in which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? In which month do Russians celebrate... The October Revolution is the easiest, uh, world's easiest quiz, all right? Number three, what is a camel's hair brush made of? Camel's hair brush. Number four, the Canary Islands in the Pacific are named after what animal? All right? You think you're doing well so far? How many think you got them all so far? Let me see. All right. Four of you. I'm a little concerned about you. If, if only four of you think you got it. Number five. What was King George the sixth? What was King George the sixth first name? Right. Roman numerals trip you up sometimes. King George the sixth first name. Number six. What color is a purple finch? Number seven. Where are Chinese gooseberries from? That's goose. That's me. That's an E there. Not, I don't know what gooseberries are, but that's so sweet gooseberries. All right. Chinese gooseberries are from where? And number eight, how long did the 30 years war last? All right. Easy. Completely right. Number one, how long did the hundred year wars last? How many? What would you say? hundred years. That's wrong. It's 116 years. 1337 to 1453. Number two, in which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? 
November is correct. Somebody's showing off some knowledge over here. Number three, what's camel's hair's brush made of? Squirrel fur. Exactly, right? Because when you think camel, you think squirrel. Canary Islands of the Pacific, you're like, certainly this one, right? Anybody know what the animal's named after? Dogs. There's silence there, right? In Latin, how many of you took Latin in high school? There you are. I see you. I see you Latin folks like me. All right. Go back. and I'm getting to teach some Latin here. Let's go back. There we are. Right. In Latin, the name of the island is Insularia Canaria, which means the island of the dogs. Now, if you don't learn a single thing else in the rest of the sermon, you learn two words in Latin. All right. Number five. Y'all are less impressed with this than I imagine. What is King George the sixth first name? Anybody know? Albert. What, Teresa, look at that, knowing that. You know why his name was King George instead of King Albert? Because his, there was a queen that said she didn't ever want a king of England to be named Albert. And so he abided by her wishes. Number six, what color is a purple finch? It's crimson red. All you Alabama fans, there it is right there. Crimson red. Number seven. Chinese gooseberries are from where? New Zealand. All right. How many of you got them all right so far? How many of you got any of them right so far? A couple of you. All right. Last one. Here it is. How long was the 30 years war? You may want to guess. 30 years. Why did y'all not get that one? Right. You got one. All right. Good job, David Jackson. All right. So here's why we did that. All right. Uh, here's the here's the thing. So you ever been convinced you were right about something? I mean, absolutely convinced you were right about something and then found out you were wrong. You have a disagreement with your spouse and both of you were absolutely convinced that you were the one that were, was right in the whole situation. Anybody ever have any of those spouses? All right. Y'all didn't have those. Ben and Patricia. Yeah, you do. All right. And so one time I, I remember vividly. Um, this is before we lived here in, in Goodlettsville, before we lived in the Nashville area. Susan and I, um, we were uh, married and we were here in Nashville shopping at Opry Mills. Because that's what you do when you're from out of town. You come to Opry Mills to shop, right? And we're walking around and we got into a, um, how, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, um, a discussion about men's fashion and a particular term associated with men's fashion. Okay, fashion's really a too nice of a word for it. It was about men's pants. We were having a discussion about a word with that. And I was absolutely convinced I was right. Susan was absolutely convinced she was right, and we disagreed. Now, I don't know if you are aware of this, but that cannot happen. That cannot be true, right? And so we decided the only way to truly get this assessed was to go up to someone in a men's store and ask the question that was debating among us. And so we went up to the man in the store and I did this move. You go ahead. You ask him. Like, think I'm the man. I know what I'm talking about. You ask. Go. I was just, you know how, you know how, this is just for us guys, right? You know how you serve that up there? Like, there you go. It's time for you to find out. And she asked the question and he agreed completely with her. No clapping. That is not necessary <laughs> at all. And, you know, there's that moment when like, like, what? Like, I'm, that can't, that, I'm wrong. 
Do you know how hard those words are to say? Some of you are like, no, I've never said them, so I don't understand how hard those are. Right? Any of you have spouses that have never said those? Please don't raise your hand. That might be a problem. Um, and so, like, everything about you is like, what? It doesn't matter when you're talking about pants. I mean, in the big scheme of life, it doesn't matter. But what if we get the question wrong when it does? Like, when it really matters. Like, among the most important stuff in life. We've been in this series called Counterculture for a few weeks now. We've got two more weeks, this week and next week. And we're going to talk about a couple of um, sensitive issues. Today may not be as sensitive as you first think on the surface. And next week will be the, probably the biggest hot topic uh, in our culture with Christianity right now. And so we're going to talk about these issues and what they mean. But before we get there, I, I want us to look in the book of James to lead up to that. Because here's what the book of James is, okay? In a lot of ways, the book of James is a pop quiz for those of us that call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ. And James says to us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what it ought to look like. Now, there have been some people that have so disliked the book of James that they wish that it wasn't in Scripture. And I want to be honest with you. When I'm reading through like my my yearly readings or daily readings or I'm doing a devotional and it sees James pop up, part of me is like, "Mm, that's tough. Because James is one of those guys that just comes up and says what he thinks and says it straightly and plainly, and you have to react to it. And the book of James is asking the question, do you really believe? I read a quote this week from um, uh, a Dutch philosopher. I know you all reading Dutch philosophers, so, but Dutch philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And this is what he said about us and Christianity and why I think it's so important to have these kind of moments of self-evaluation. He said the human race in the course of time has taken the liberty of softening and softening Christianity until at last we have contrived to make it exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. And here's what we're in danger of here is that we've just taken Christianity and and taken our culture here in the Nashville, Tennessee, Goodlettsville, White House, Hendersonville, that culture. And we just married the two together without ever thinking. And we somehow think that our lifestyle is equivalent to the gospel. And we developed this whole area of comfortable Christianity where it's perfectly okay to come and just kind of sit around and to hear a message and to go, well, that was good. And listen to Christian radio on the radio. But we are not seeing our lives radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so James writes this book, and the reason he writes it is this. It's because even then, 2,000 years ago, there were people walking around claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, and James is going to say to them, you're not. You're not. And he says to them, if you are, here are some characteristics in your life. Now, I want to be very clear. James is not saying you have to do these things to be saved. What he's saying is, if you have been saved, if you have been set free, if you've been redeemed, if Christ has transformed you, then you ought to look, act, think differently. And man, he starts right from the beginning. He says that, listen, if you're a believer and you've got trials and you've got persecutions and you've got junk happening in your life, be excited about that. Have joy in it. Love it. You're like, I don't think that's how we react. What he will not allow is the comfortable Christianity that we so desire. Here's a quote from another ancient guy, Martin Luther, who says this. Religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing 
is worth nothing. And here's the thing that we have to realize as Americans, okay? And, and we're going to build a case, and then I want to talk about a specific issue, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. Is that we have to come to the realization that American Christianity may not be what we think or what we see Christianity portrayed in Scripture. In fact, I just put up three points here. American Christianity today seems to be more concerned about comfort than sacrifice, more concerned about conformity than transformation, and more concerned about what I can get than what I can give. And if you look at Scripture, Christianity following Christ is about sacrifice, transformation, and what I can give. Take your Bibles in James chapter 1. Read these, this passage of Scripture with me. Starting in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So the emphasis here is not on hearing the word of God. It's not on listening to the word of God. It's not on listening to a sermon. It's not on listening to a song worship service. It's not on listening to Christian radio. It is on doing what God has called us to do. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. If that's who you are, if you just hear it, you don't do it. If you're just, a, 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 if you're just marginally committed to Christianity, if it's the thing that you isn't taken over your whole life, but just a part of your life, if, if you give but not sacrificially, if you do things just to kind of get the pleasure of doing them instead of seeking Christ and his will for your life. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he was like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Let's leave it there for a second. So question, how many of you looked in a mirror before you came to church this morning at some point? All right. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You just, what'd you do? Right. Okay. How many of you, when you looked in that mirror, looked in the mirror and said, it cannot get any better than that. We got to talk about standards, David. All right. Like you just look and go like, man, that is the that's it. Ain't getting better than that. Now, some of you may have looked in the be- in the mirror and go, oh, it's not going to get any better than this. Like, I mean, some of you may have been that, but I'm not that. I'm talking like, that's it. I'm good, and you walk out the door, right? Anybody do that this morning? Honestly, how many of you looked in the mirror? You were like, Ugh, like I got to do something about that, right? And so, guys, what, you worked with whatever hair you got left and. Try to get something there and got, you know, maybe what, what do you call those things in the corner of your eyes? Sleepers, sleepies, crusties, eye boogers, what do you ever you call them, right? You got those out. You're looking like you are adjusting how you look. My guess is nobody got out of bed this morning, looked in the mirror and is at church exactly like you looked then. Because that would be foolish. You, you want to present yourself better. He says. Those of us, if we're not careful, we become people that have the mirror of God's word shown to us. And we see it. And we realize there's stuff there. And then we just walk away and we don't do anything about it. He forgets what he was like. Next verse. But the one who looks into the perfect law. The law of liberty and perseveres. That just means does what he's supposed to do. She's supposed to do like obeys the word. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Those are the people that are following God. If anyone thinks 
He is religious. Now, I know in our society, kind of religion, religious has kind of a bad connotation. That's not what James means here. He, he's talking about, honestly, it, this is the right people. If anyone thinks that he's following God, that he is after Jesus, that he is doing what God's called him to do and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I just want to be real honest with you. We could walk through the entire book of James and list characteristics of those who have given their heart and their lives to Jesus Christ and are following him. We don't have time to do all that today. And so I want to point out three, and then I want to park at number three for a little bit, okay? The first thing that we see just in this passage of Scripture is just... Six verses in passage of scripture, just in these verses, the first thing I see here is that a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ is someone who has been transformed by the word of God. Two parts of that. First of all, that you have been changed, that your life has been changed, that you are no longer the same, that you are different because the God's word has infiltrated your life. Now, this isn't talking about salvation. This is someone that has given their heart to Jesus. This is talking about the process after salvation when God molds us and shapes us and forms us and turns us into who he wants us to be. And scripture says the most evident way, the easiest way for us to see that to happen is to dive deeply into the word of God and allow the mirror of God's word to shine itself on our lives. And as it says in Psalm 139, that we would see the offensive ways that are in us and we would change those. We see those ways that God says go further in this way and we would begin to mold and shape our lives to the word of God. Now, here's the thing, okay? The problem with that for many of you is that in order to be changed by the word of God, you have to read the word of God. In order for the mirror to change how you see yourself, you have to look into the mirror. This morning, when I get up at my house on Sunday mornings, I get here early, nobody's awake, and I try to keep it that way, right? Because my wife loves it when I keep it that way. She doesn't like kids running around at 530 in the morning ready to go. And so this morning, I got to church, I locked my keys inside the church. I had to sit out in the church parking lot until somebody else got here. That's a whole different story. When I got in the church and I went and just to the restroom to kind of look in the mirror, I realized I apparently left the house without looking in a mirror. Because my hair was all over the place. Now you're like, what hair? It's there, all right? And it's the thing of, I didn't even look this morning. Apparently there's no light on in the house. I didn't look, so I got to church. And it's too late. I tried to do something with it. It didn't work. And so you, you just like, I didn't even look. If I would have looked, I would have seen that immediately. But I didn't look. There are a lot of us as believers walking around today. And we walk out of the house every single day of our lives. And we don't even look at the mirror of God's word. You don't check your heart and your life and your attitude. We spout off what we think about other people and about situations and what's happening in our life. We get angry about things and we yell about political stuff and we talk about people in our class and we talk about people at work and we talk about the people at our church and we don't even stop to let the mirror of God reflect on us and see who we are and change who we are. You cannot, cannot be changed by the Word of God if you're not reading the Word of God. Scripture says that this book, and listen, you want to talk about the most, one of the most countercultural statements we'll say in this whole series is this. We believe 
that a book that was composed over 2,000 years ago, finished a little under 2,000 years ago, been composed over thousands of years, been done for a couple of thousand, is a book that tells us exactly how we live and interact and breathe and work and make decisions in our lives. We believe this isn't some dead literature that you study in a literature class in high school to figure out the symbolism of the Psalms. We believe that this is a living word of God, a revelation to his people about what we are to do and to think and to act. And if God has taken the time to give us more access than any group that has ever lived in the history of the world to the revelation that he desires for our lives, it would be wise for us to look at it and then to let it change us. We don't go to to figure out our political arguments. We don't go to it to figure out how we can use it to knock somebody else down. We go to it humbly looking for how God wants to change us. The first characteristic of a true believer in Christ is a life that's transformed by God's word. Here's the second one. It is simply that we are people. Not only have they been transformed by the word of God, but also we are people that have our tongues, our words controlled. From a changed heart. Can you imagine if everything you ever said was only what God intended for you to say? Can I tell you something? Most of us would talk a whole lot less. Right? I mean, James, just a few verses before this says, be slow to, slow to, y'all don't want to say it. You're like, I don't want to talk. Slow to speak. Quick to listen. Slow to anger. And this is important for us because it's not just about the words that come out of our mouth anymore. We live in a society where you can express your thoughts and your wishes and what's on your mind better and more easily and more widely than ever before. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the unbelievable bliss of not having a clue when all my friends were at theme parks. Right? There is somebody from our church at Disney World every week of the year. Many of you multiple times a week. And that is not good for the satisfaction of my kids or my soul to know that. Like you open up, well, look at that. Look at all the fun they're having. What are we doing today? We're mowing the yard. All right, good with that. That's awesome, right? I mean, we've got access to things that we never knew. But that allows us to say things that we never would have had opportunity to say. And it allows us to say it more quickly. And so it's not just the speech from our mouths. It's the tweets. And the Instagrams and the Snapchats and the Facebook messages and the text messages and the voicemails and the Skypes and the FaceTimes. Anybody sat down to write a letter recently? Like, no, right? Well, a couple of us, right? I, I write occasionally. Um, I write things to people that um, something happens or some of you write thank you notes. Isn't it a more, like think if you haven't think back to that day of yore, that long ago time when you sat down and wrote something like you thought about it, you, you worked on it, you ran it through your mind. Today, people are like just flying stuff off in a moment. If we're not careful, our speech, our tweets, our Facebook messages depict a heart is not what we want it to depict. James will say later, uh, Patrick talked about this last week, in fact, that how do you allow praise to come forth from the same mouth that you allow curses? He says, now listen, 
You remember what he says? Look at the, look at the passage again. I, I wish James would say what he really thought here, don't you? If he thinks he's religious, if you think that's who you are, and you can't control your tongue, your religion is, what's that word? Worthless. Not any good. Not real. Speaking out in anger. Gossiping about people. Not directly confronting people when you have issues with one another, but talking around each other until it blows up into something bigger than it ever should have been, instead of going directly to one another. Using words of anger and contempt. Using slurs. Inappropriate language. The tone of their voice. I know y'all have had this moment when words come out of your mouth and as they're leaving your mouth, you wish you could reach out and grab them because you know the impact they're about to have. Now, some of you are like, I don't ever have that. Well, then you need to check your heart. Because it is true. There are some people who just say words and they don't care what the after effects are. That's a heart problem. People that are believers, true believers, are people that have been transformed by the word of God. Secondly, are people that have a tongue controlled by a spirit that's been changed. And here's the, the last one, and I want to talk about it for just a minute. They're people... They give sacrificial care for those in need. This is what James says. Sacrificial care for those in need. Look what he says in the verse that we looked at a minute ago. Orphans and widows. It says this is true religion. This is what it truly means to have faith. And that is this. That you visit orphans and widows. Now, just to let you know, that doesn't mean... You drive up to an orphanage and you get out and go, hey, how you doing? Visiting you today. Good to see you. Talk to you later. Bye. Right. The word visit there means to minister to or help. Now, here's why that's an important thing. If you look through scripture, these two were put together all the time. Fatherless and the widow. Fatherless and the widow. In the Old Testament, God says, I am I am a father to the fatherless. In the Old Testament, he says, make sure you look after the fatherless and the widow. He, he talks about true religion. He'll, he'll tell people in the Old Testament, Isaiah 58, man, you're coming to worship and you're reading the word of God and you're preaching the word of God and you're listening to the word of God and you're singing the truths about the word of God and you're fasting and you're doing all the stuff that it says in Scripture that you ought to do in worship to the Lord. But you have failed me because you aren't taking care of the fatherless and the widow. And here's what this means, all right? The reason this is an important deal is because their society, the orphans and the widows, were the most vulnerable people in their society. Now, that's still true today in some ways. I'm not saying that they're not vulnerable anymore, but you have to understand, in their day and time, the only people that could work and bring in income or food or any kind of thing to provide for the family were men who were of age, so teenage and up men. And so if you are a widow and you've lost your husband, you have lost the one that can make any kind of sustenance or money or any kind of of food for you. And if you're a child and you've lost your dad and you're not of age, you're a male or you're female and you don't have a dad that can provide for you, you are destitute and poor and dependent upon other people to take care of you. They didn't have 401k retirement plans back then. They didn't have survivor benefits or social security or life insurance. When your husband died, your your sustenance died. Your sustenance died. And so these people became the most vulnerable people in their society. Orphans and widows. And so we ask the question, well, who are the most 
vulnerable in our society? Well, first of all, it starts with these two, orphans and widows. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are 153 million orphans in the world today. 153 million orphans. That means half the population of this country, if you were to take that worldwide, that's how many orphans there are. Now, orphans are classified anybody that's lost a parent. If you count just the ones that have lost both parents and are truly on their own, you have 18 million worldwide. That doesn't count the ones that are born to moms and dads that don't really care or aren't really present or aren't really working to be in their lives. And scripture says that part of our responsibility is to take care of those orphans. I said this in the first service, and I firmly believe it. The greatest adoption agency in the world ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. It ought to be the ones that are looking out for them, that are helping them, that are trying to find ways to adopt them. And in America, part of what we've done is we have a problem in this country, not just of, of kids in foster care. I, orphans not even a politically correct term anymore. I don't know if you know that or not. They don't talk about orphans. Anybody see the new Annie movie that came out about a year and a half ago? A year, year ago? May. See that? How many saw that? Okay. You know, they didn't call her little orphan Annie anymore. They, she was foster kid. We've got an issue in our culture with, with not only those foster kids that are being passed around from place to place to place to place in need of a good home where people can provide good things for them, but they also have this issue of people that are fatherless, that don't have any kind of influence, that are being raised by grandmothers, lots of kids in inner city who are being raised by grandparents, and their grandparents aren't able to provide for them what they need. And as a church... We ought to be the ones rushing into there, not criticizing political policy about how it's being handled, although we may disagree with that. We ought to be the ones saying we don't care what the political policy is. We are rushing into that place to rescue them and to help take care of them and to make a way for them to have a hope and a chance. Shame on us, church. For being the ones that stand at the side and say, I can't believe they're allowing their kids to do that. And I can't believe that that's happening there. And I can't believe the government is doing that instead of saying, how can we step into the situation and be a part of the solution? I firmly believe that God is calling the church to be a part of the solution for kids that are in desperate need. And the question is not if you're going to do that. If you're a follower of Christ, that's part of what you do. It's a how. Who are you going to support? How are you going to step in? How are you going to talk to people? They're in the first service, and I didn't talk about them in the first service because they were here, but let me tell you something. About five years ago, I preached a message. It had nothing to do with this topic at all. At all. And David, Kathy, Zakola were here. And they came up to me afterwards, and they talked to me about lots of stuff, lots of situations. And they had been through some times. Dave and Kathy both worked with, with kids and with women that had been abused and had been in situations. That's their jobs. And so there's a heart for them for that. And I remember distinctly having a conversation standing right over there. And they said, we don't know why and we don't know how and we don't know what it means. But God is calling us to find a child and adopt them. And not, they told me this, not the clean, easy adoption. We're talking like a kid that's not a baby, not a one-year-old, not a two-year-old, but a child that's been through a lot. 
You know what's cool for me? Is I've been now uh, two years to Center Kid with David Zacola. Let me just tell you, if you've never experienced Center Kid with David Zacola, you've never experienced Center Kid. That's just reality, all right? Kids camp. And on that camp is Jackson Zacola, who's now sixth grader going into youth group. Jackson is the answer to that prayer. You know what's really cool for me? <laughs> it's, uh, Jackson's their kid. Like, he's not their adoptive kid. He's their kid. And if you don't believe that, you watch how they treat him. He's their kid, all right? And I love the heart that God has given them. And I pray that we would be open to whatever that means for all of us. Orphans and widows. Widows have a need in our church. Listen, I am thankful that we live in a country where the widow need is not what it once was. They're not destitute. They're not ostracized from society. They can help make a living. There are life insurance policies, all that. But that doesn't mean they need our, don't need our comfort and our support and our prayers and our love. One of my favorite things our youth do each year is do the uh, g Future because they get to go and be with some of our senior adults, some of our widows, and sit with them, talk with them, and love on them. Our job is to be a part of ministering to the most vulnerable in our society. All right, There are three more categories that I think that that includes for us that maybe weren't in first century, but it is for us. We're going to do those real quickly. And the first one is this. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But it's the unborn. Man, since I talked about that abortion stuff, that's, that's just kind of faded away. Nobody's talking about that anymore, right? No, it's not. Those videos are out. Those grotesque videos are there. The most vulnerable, helpless, without a voice people in our society are the unborn. And we must be their voice. If you want to know more about that, I preached a sermon on it about a month ago. It's online. You can go find it on our podcast through iTunes or on our website or through our Vimeo channel. You can find it. But it's our responsibility. Here's another group that you don't think about. And that is slaves. Let me ask you a question, all right? When you think of the word slavery, what do you think about? Apparently nothing, all right. What do you think about when you think about slavery? Like plantation, civil war, the South, right? And we think, well, that all ended, right? Well, let me just show you a picture. Anybody know who this guy is? Y'all know that guy, right? Some awesome hair, I know that. This is a guy, I'll give you some clues, all right? This guy's had a major motion picture made about his life. New York Times best-selling book about his life. In the midst of this whole abortion debate that's happening, they're talking about the fact that he may be a guy, that this is our moment, like it was his moment, and that we need to step up like he did. One of his best friends and mentor has a musical on Broadway about him that they actually are going to be performing tomorrow night on the Fallon Tonight Show. Anybody know who it is now? You got all that right? There's a guy named William Wilberforce. Maybe you've ever heard of his name. Yeah, all seven of us. Good. William Wilberforce was the major proponent of ending slavery in England that eventually trickled to this place. His mentor was a guy named John Newton. Anybody know what John Newton wrote? This, he did not write Newton's Laws, but that's good. He wrote, thanks for, he wrote Amazing Grace. Anybody ever heard that song? You ever heard of the song Amazing Grace? Right? The Amazing Grace was written by a guy who fought hard against the slave trade. And William Wilberforce was that. And there are there's people out there that think, man, this dude was cool and awesome. He fought slavery and slavery ended. Can I tell you something right now? Today, right now, 
There are more slaves in the world than were transported from Africa to America in 400 years. Today, there are 27 million people living in slavery. 27 million people living in slavery. And I do think it's a Wilberforce kind of moment. Whereas the church, we stand up and fight for those who can't. When I was at the SIN conference and the conference that was the next day, the ethics conference, uh, David Platt um, told a story about a girl named Malia. Malia uh, grew up in a village in Nepal, in the mountains of Nepal. Malia grew up in the mountains of Nepal in that village. And uh, she was nine years old and she was the oldest child. She had like two or three Two or three uh, brothers and sisters. And her mom was trying to do the best she could for her family. Her dad had left her, gone somewhere else, no longer around the family. And Malia was the one that had to take care of the younger kids while her mom tried to make a living. One day, Malia was in the village and a guy came up from down in the city and he saw her and he said to, to her mom, said, hey, uh, I noticed that you've got a good hard worker there. And she said, yeah, it's Malia. That's my oldest. He said, listen, she can make a lot of money for you as a family if you let her come work for me and do the exact same thing she's doing here, cooking and cleaning and, and taking care of kids. If you would let her do that, she can make a lot more money than she's making now. And I would send it back to you and she'd come see you every six months and we'd all, all that. If you would let her do that, it'd be great. And her mom's like, I can't give up. I mean, you know, tempted, but I can't give up Malia. And he said, well, I'm just going to tell you, I'll be back in a few weeks. And I want you to think about this. And he says, oh, and by the way, if you'll let her go with me to do the same thing she's doing here down in the city, I will give you a hundred dollars. Now he told her in their term and to us, that's like a oh, hundred dollars. But for them, that's like half a year's wages. So for instance, it would be like somebody saying to a family here in America, if you'll let her go with me, I'll give you $30,000 right here. Jesus, I can't do that. I can't leave my girl go. And so she left, or the guy left. About six months later, he came back and he said, I brought the money with me today. $30,000, same thing she's doing down there. You'll just let her go with me. And so reluctantly, she said, you can go. So Malia was taken down to the city. And Malia was not put to work doing the things that she had done for her family back in the house. She was not sweeping and cleaning and cooking. She was there solely for the benefit of men. Nine years old. Multiple times a day. David Platt described as he walked through the village talking to the moms, they all said, we've never seen him again. We only got that one time money. We never got any more. They've forgotten us and they don't care. Well, the truth is, Malia is one of 27 million people worldwide as a slave. And you don't have to go to Nepal. I-40 and I-20 are some of the greatest trafficking networks in our country and in the world. They don't have a voice. They don't have any way to get out of it. They don't know how. They, they don't have the resources. And I can't think of someone more helpless and hopeless than that. It's an affront to the gospel. Because those girls and boys are made in the image of God. And are His precious creation.
That's our job. If nobody else will, and there are those that are, it is our job to confront that and to work towards that where they can know the God that loves them and rescue them from that. I mean, when I say it's not very far, um, we know Jason Ranslow, who's uh, head of our men's ministry. Jason has worked for the last few years with an organization called Rescue One, and they are working identifying and helping women in the sex trafficking industry in Madison and Hendersonville. Anybody know that that's close? And Goodlettsville. William Wilberforce was a normal guy who got converted to Christianity that had a passion to see slavery end. And I pray for hundreds, thousands to raise up in a new day. And here's the last one and probably the most controversial one I'll say today. It's immigrants. Listen, we have to be, and I've said this before, but we have to be very, very careful as believers in Jesus Christ the way we talk about immigration issues in this country. I mean, I know it sounds simple. Just build a wall and don't let those people in. And we ain't got to worry about it because all those illegals, we don't want them here anyways. I mean, that's the rhetoric you hear. But here's what we fail to recognize in the midst of saying things like that is that every single one of those people trying to cross the border is a child made in the image of God who he loves and cares about. And most of whom, illegal or legal, are just trying to find a way to help their family and to do something better for them. I read a whole Bible study this week, and it was something that you don't even think about, but it says, be careful how you talk about illegal immigrants because Jesus once was one. I don't know if you remember this, but in the story of Jesus being born, remember when Herod starts killing everybody? Do you all remember that? What, what, what did Jesus and his family do? They flee to Egypt where they're not welcome. They're not supposed to be there, and they live there until it goes away. They're illegal immigrants in Egypt. Now, I'm not saying that it's an easy political thing. I'm not concerned about the political atmosphere of all that is happening. What I'm concerned about is that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ not talk about those people as if it's a different brand and a subcategory of people and that we are somehow superior to them because we live here. They are created in the image of God. They are people for whom Christ died. And our mission compels us to love and care and support and figure out a way to take the gospel to them. My question sometimes is when I listen to people who call themselves Christians and they're talking about this political stuff. Is your mission in life to build a wall or is your mission in life to save people saved for the kingdom of God? Again, I'm not I really not want to be political. But I do want to be about what the gospel calls us to be about. Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you're looking for scripture verse, talks about that God loves the sojourner. And it says, if we love God, then we will love those who are aliens in our midst, who are immigrants in our midst. You see, James says it very clearly, and then we're done. He doesn't ask, do you think this ought to be something that you should care about some days? He says, if you have true religion, true faith, true belief in Jesus, then part of what you are doing will be taking care of the least of these. And my question to you simply today is, are you? And I'm going to put a blog post out the first couple of days because I know I haven't given you a lot of handles about, okay, what do I do about that? What do I do about Malia? What do I do about all that stuff? I'm going to put a blog post out. If you don't get blog posts or um, don't follow me on Facebook or it'll be on the website, um, we'll, put them, we'll run some off and put them on the desk about organizations. So I want you to have it in your hand about organizations you can give to, organizations you can support, organizations you can volunteer in for those areas. But the question is not, are you going to do something? If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, it's just simply, 
What are you going to do? Let's pray together.